If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been doing a series entitled Restore. We're talking about uh, different things that are important to us, even though they may not always be popular things, whether that be popular within general culture or popular even in the religious world, even amongst those who are Bible believers and those who want to follow Jesus, that we believe these things are important because Scripture teaches them, even though they may run counter to our culture. So we've talked about things like every Christian needs a church family, and every church family needs godly overseers. We talked about uh, the week after that about unity and how unity is the point of Christianity, that Christianity isn't about separating ourselves from everybody else. It's not about drawing lines and building walls. In fact, it's about the fact that Jesus tears down those walls and that the goal, the mission of the church is to partner with God in uniting humanity in Jesus. That's our mission. That's our goal. That's what it's all about. We talked about last week about baptism, that baptism is Jesus's invitation. And it's an invitation that is saying to the world that Jesus loves them and that he longs to forgive them and give them his spirit. And these things are taught in scripture, even if that's not always what people think or believe. And this morning, our, our, Topic shouldn't really be controversial, but it is because of the culture that we live in. In fact, I'll be honest, I'm a little bit nervous about teaching this lesson. I'm sure if you saw the scripture reading, you thought, ha ha ha, yeah, somebody told me I should, you know, get something for courage at least, you know, so I'm a little bit nervous about it, but it's funny, I was talking to Holly last night and I told her, I said, I'm a little worried about the sermon tomorrow morning. She said, why? It's what the Bible says. And I said, Amen, sister, that's right. It is what the Bible says. So that that's that's what we're that's what we're saying this morning. Is that when you're a follower of Jesus, there are certain things that you adopt and accept because you're a follower of Jesus. That asking someone, do you want to follow Jesus, is about more than do you want to be forgiven and about where do you want to go when you die. I'm afraid we've too often reduced it. To that, it's a, it's a huge decision and you don't have to decide to follow Jesus. The consequences are there if you don't, but you don't have to. None of us have to decide to follow Jesus. But if we do decide to follow Jesus, then part of what we're saying is we're going to adopt Jesus' unique way of looking at the world and dealing with the world. A unique perspective, a unique worldview, a unique way to deal with people. And part of that Part of that is, is something that has revolutionized the world. That to us today, it doesn't sound very radical or very extreme, but in the days of Christ, in the days of the apostles, the idea that every human being is equally and immeasurably valuable, that concept was incredibly controversial and radical. In fact, in many places in the world today, it's a revolutionary idea that everybody, every single human being is immeasurably valuable, is equally valuable, that rich people and poor people are equally valuable, that slaves and free people are equally valuable, that men and women are equally valuable. That adults and children are equally 
valuable. You see, when we decide to follow Jesus, we're deciding that we will adopt and accept that unique way of looking at other human beings, that other human beings, no matter what their nationality is, no matter what their race is, no matter if they're male or female, no matter if they're rich or poor or young or old, we will choose to see them as image bearers of God. And, and, and that unique perspective means that we live in a certain kind of way. And Jesus says it looks like this. It looks like loving your neighbor, even if your neighbor is someone who hates you. Even if your neighbor is a part of a social group that your social group typically says, we don't, we don't have anything to do with people in that other group or those kinds of people. Even if that's the way you grew up, adopting Jesus' worldview, adopting Jesus' unique way of looking at and living in the world means that you adopt and accept that you will love your neighbor as yourself that you will love every human being as an image bearer of God, that you will not just love them, but prefer them over self. That's what Jesus teaches us, isn't it? And church, listen, that is a revolutionary idea. And, And I don't think that we often take seriously how much that's changed the world. In the last 2,000 years, how much it has changed the world that that unique way of thinking and that unique way of living has come into the world. If it weren't for the gospel, if it weren't for people that took seriously what it means to follow Jesus, and there's some people that claim to follow Jesus and didn't take that concept seriously, but for those that did, it ended slavery in many places in the world. It would continue to end slavery today if we would recognize that and promote that truth. It elevated the status of all kinds of people around the world, including women and children, to say that every human being is equally valuable and should be loved and preferred over self. That changed the world. And it will continue to change the world if we're willing to take seriously the things that Jesus taught and the things that Jesus said and the things that his apostles taught and said, and, and that may be a concept you're like, hey, yeah, I, I get behind that. Love everybody, love your neighbor, love your, love people, different genders and people, the different races and nationalities. Absolutely, I can agree with that. But, but there's another concept that it's taught from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And it, it might be a little bit controversial in our culture today is that men and women have different roles. And, and again, you may say, oh, I don't know about that. Well, well, well hold on. If we're going to take seriously the teachings of Jesus and his apostles, then we, we can't just kind of pick and choose the, the concepts and the perspectives that we want to accept. We've got to say, okay, it all, it all goes together, but, but you can't have one without the other. So it's sad, but it's true that sometimes people have taken that concept that there's different roles, that men have certain roles in the world and in the church and in the family, and women have different roles in the home and the church and the family. And they've taken that and they've used that to the detriment of that first principle we talked about. But, but you can't, you can't do that, can you? you? You can't take this truth that men have certain roles and women have certain roles and use that to mean that one, one gender is more important than the other or one gender's role is more important than the other. That, that goes against everything Jesus and his apostles taught and, and stand for. 
that, that it, it goes hand in hand. But, I mean, certainly that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Or at least it should. I, I mean, I've got two kids. They're both boys, but one's older and one's younger. And if I say to the older, if I say, Malachi, here's your job, your responsibility, your role. And I say to Noah, here's your job and your role and your responsibility. Even though they're different roles and responsibilities, it doesn't somehow imply that one role is more important than the other, or one child is more important than the other, or, hey, I love you more, that's why I'm giving you this job. It doesn't imply anything like that, does it? Just because different people have different roles doesn't mean, and it can't mean in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that one person is more valuable than the other. And, and we have to understand that from the beginning, that men must love and prefer women above themselves, that they must seek their best interests above their own. That's what Philippians chapter 2 teaches, that every human being should be loved and preferred over self. But that doesn't negate the truth that there are different roles for different people in the kingdom. Now, we're going to look at 1 Timothy and so if you got your Bible, we'll be there. And, and that's not a major theme of 1 Timothy. It's not a major theme of any book of the New Testament, but it's there. And I want us to look at the major theme of 1 Timothy because Paul is writing to this young preacher, this young evangelist. I love the word that Matt used earlier, a herald. Paul is a herald, and he's making Timothy a herald of this good news. And so he's writing to Timothy specifically because there are all kinds of false doctrines and false teachings in Ephesus. So that that's, that's kind of the overarching theme of this letter, is that Paul has sent this young preacher there to stop the false teachers and to stop the false teaching. And so everything kind of revolves around that bigger theme. And we're really kind of unsure what exactly the false teaching was, what exactly were these false teachers teaching, but we can pick up hints throughout the book. So Again, I know I always encourage you to do this, but seriously, it'll only take you a few minutes. Go home this afternoon, read through 1 Timothy, read the whole letter, and kind of see what I'm talking about. But you'll notice certain words that Paul uses all throughout the book, things like this, myths and endless genealogies and speculations and vain discussions, desire to be teachers of the law, they they forbid marriage, they required abstinence from certain foods, they promoted irreverent, silly myths, conceit, craving, listen to this, craving for controversy, quarrels about words, envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicious, suspicions, constant friction, greed, irreverent babble, contradiction. So all of these kind of words and concepts, it's what the whole letter is about, that there are these teachers in Ephesus that are promoting this kind of nonsense. And Paul sends Timothy there to deal with that. But but here's one interesting thing that I think has to be pointed out, because sometimes it comes up, that, that it's pretty certain that the false teachers are men. We don't have any reason to expect that they're not men, that, that, that maybe they're women. That there's no reason to believe that, because he, he names a couple specifically, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and the pronouns that he uses about these false teachers are all men. So... Even though there are some women who are being led astray, and that, that's a key theme throughout this book is being led astray. There are some women, along with some men, who are being led astray by these false teachers. There's no reason to think that what Paul says about 
the roles of men and women have anything to do with the women being false teachers. That's, that's not in the text at all. There's no reason to believe that. But here's, here's one thing that you'll see throughout the text is this, is that Paul is helping Timothy to be aware. And everybody that's reading this kind of open letter that Paul's writing to Timothy, that you're at war. You're at war. And you're not at war with people. You're at war with Satan. That all throughout this book, there's this idea that Satan is tempting and testing and that, that Satan, he's a, he's a deceiver. That's, that's a key word in the book of, of 1 Timothy is this being deceived. And it's Satan that's behind it. It's Satan that's behind all of this endless talk. It's Satan that's behind all of this controversy. It's Satan that's behind the anger. And it's Satan that's behind the quarreling. And it's Satan that's leading people astray. In chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul talks about deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And so Paul is saying to Timothy... Timothy, I want you, chapter 1, he says, I want you to wage good warfare. And I want you to make sure there are shepherds, that there are elders that are going to do the same, that are going to stand up, and I know this isn't politically correct to say, but act like men, and stand in between Satan and the people of God. That's what he's calling Timothy to do. That's what he's calling these elders to do. That's what he's calling the men in Ephesus to do, is saying Satan is a very real and present threat. And Satan wants to lead the church at Ephesus astray. And he's working very hard at doing that. You need to wage good warfare against Satan. You need to stand between Satan and the people of God. That's what the elders need to do. That's what the men need to do. And again, that may not be politically correct to say, men, we have responsibility. Not not a privilege, but a burden. A heavy responsibility to teach and to lead and to stand up and to be courageous and stand in between, stand in the gap between Satan and the people of God that, in fact, every man and woman has a job. The church in Ephesus to stand up against the schemes of Satan. And church, I believe that, that that's as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. Amen? I, I believe that Satan is still trying to deceive and lead God's people astray. And I believe that it's as relevant now as it was then to say, men, we've got to act like men. And we've got to have the courage and the boldness to stand between Satan and the people of God. We have to have the boldness and the courage to lead. We have to have the boldness and the courage to defend. We have to have the boldness and the courage to protect God's people. And that's what this letter, I think, is all about. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll go through the whole chapter real quick. This, Well, real quick. No promises. We'll see. First uh, Timothy 2, verse 1. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for, look at it, all people. All people. See, we have a tendency, and I appreciate so much what Matt had to say during the communion focus this morning. We, we have a tendency, don't we, to, to be concerned about me and my rights and my salvation and what I have and what I should have. And, and there's a part of that that's, that's appropriate and good. But, but sometimes we forget it's about all people. And the mission we're called to care about is the salvation of all people. 
And Paul says, I, I want, I want prayers to be offered up on behalf of all people and pray especially for the people that are in authority, for kings and for all who are in high positions. Why? So that we, the people of God, may lead a peaceful and quiet, that word quiet there means tranquil, peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. See, that, that's exactly the opposite of the results of all the false teaching, wasn't it? All those words we read a minute ago, speculations and uh, envy and dissension and slander and suspicion and friction and greed and babble and contradiction, all of this nonsense that's drawing all kinds of negative attention to the church when our goal ought to be not to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to Jesus. Not self-promotion, but Jesus' promotion. To live peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified lives. That's the goal of the church. And Paul tells Timothy, be praying that that's exactly what happens. And he says, verse 3, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Both both to be praying for it and to be living it out. That what God wants is this, is salvation and a people that live peaceable, quiet, godly, dignified lives. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, that's why it matters. It matters what's preached. It's, it matters what's taught. It, it, it matters what's believed. It's, it matters what's said. And, and Paul is saying, this truth about Jesus that changes people's lives, this needs to be taught and preached and believed. But these false teachers are, are messing that up and leading God's people astray and getting them distracted. And, and, and there's all kinds of nonsense going on because this isn't at the forefront. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. He said, appointed by whom? To be a preacher, a herald, an apostle. That means somebody that's sent out on a specific mission. Who, who was it that appointed him? Jesus. It's Jesus. And so that, that's why I believe what Paul has to say. Not because, not because I, I thought of it or it's my idea or I, I say, well, I, I put my stamp of approval. Who cares what I think? Paul says, I was appointed by Jesus as an apostle. The things that he, are, he is saying to the church in Ephesus, to Timothy, to us, is about how do we live in such a way as to guard against the schemes of the devil? How do we live in such a way that we don't get led astray? How do we live in such a way that we don't get distracted? How do we live in such a way that we don't get deceived? How do we live in such a way that we stay on the right path? Well, the one of the men that Jesus appointed to teach that to the Gentiles, and that's us, is Paul, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Okay, so let's look at verse 8. He says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Again, I mean, this passage and people have just tried to 
twist and kind of re-examine every single word, different interpretations and all that kind of thing. I think what he's saying is in every place, is in every place that people are gathered together to worship, that Christians come together, in every place the men should pray. And he was just talking about prayer, right? That's the context. Pray for what? Pray for all people. Because God desires all people to be saved and pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Men need to be praying about this. How? Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. We get really caught up on the lifting hands, you know, but I I mean, I think that's probably just how they prayed, but he's saying your hands should be holy. If Church, if you're going to live a quiet and peaceful, godly and dignified life in this world, then you need men who are willing to answer this call to do what? To pray. To pray for God's people. To stand between Satan and God's people and stand there with hands lifted high that are holy. We need holy men. Godly men. Men whose hands aren't stained by anger and quarreling. You suppose that's an admonishment to what's going on in Ephesus? And if we're real honest, an admonishment to what's going on in our lives sometimes, men? Our families need this. Our church family needs this. To have men like Timothy and men like these shepherds that Timothy would appoint and men like these men that Paul is calling out in Ephesus Men like you to stand up with God's people and to pray with holy hands. Pray without anger or quarreling that we can be the kind of people that live quiet, peaceful, godly, dignified lives. Now, we're going to get to the women in just a second, but this is a, this is a tremendous calling for us, isn't it, men? That's just as relevant today as it was then. We need to stand up and be men of prayer. We need to stand up and be holy men of prayer. We need to stand up and be holy men of prayer that aren't angry and quarreling all the time. Stand up and pray for God's people. Pray for all people. Pray for those who are in authority that we can live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. And then verse 9. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Now, we're going to, it's kind of a metaphor. I'll show you the metaphor in just a second, but it's neat what he does here. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, do you see what he's emphasizing? Verse 9, how are women adorned? What is your adornment? What is it? What is it that makes you you? What is it that sets you apart? Is it that you have really great style and you wear really nice jewelry and you're really wealthy and you can afford some expensive clothes? Is it that you've adopted the latest styles? In their case, it'd be from Rome. In our case, it may be from LA or New York or whatever it may be. What is it that adorns you? And Paul says it shouldn't be that. It shouldn't be your great money or your style or your taste, your gold and your jewelry and your expensive clothes. That that shouldn't be the adornment of God's people. 
That shouldn't be the adornment of God's women, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works, with good works. That ought to be your adornment. And I know, I know you say, well, I said, oh, yeah, I mean, dangerous territory. I know, no. But listen, it's just as relevant now as it was then, right? Because apparently it's been a temptation for women from the beginning of time to be known and impress people by how they look and what they wear. And remember this overall theme that, that Paul is saying that I, I want you to not be led astray and I want you not to be deceived and I want you not to be distracted and I want you to stay on track. And it's a bad situation in a place where God's women are more concerned or are concerned with impressing people by their style and their clothes and their jewelry and their hair rather than pleasing God with humility, self-control, godliness. That's what we ought to be about. And then he says that phrase, good works. That ought to be your adornment. This is not to say it ought not to be men's adornment. It ought to be our adornment as well. In fact, that's the theme of almost everything Paul writes, that we go into the world and we live out the gospel and people ought to know us for our good works. Not to be like the pagans who try to impress people by what they're wearing. Look how, look how good looking I am. Look at my clothes. Look at my jewelry. Look at my hair. Look at what I drive. Look at the house I live in. That's, that's paganism, church. He calls us to be a people that are known, that have a reputation for good works. Selfless, humble, godly good works. That it's not about self-promotion, it's about Christ promotion. And church, listen, we could zero in and say, well, I mean, but here in just a second, you're going to tell us that women aren't supposed to teach in the assembly, and I just don't know if I can... Wait a second, hold on. How many hours are there in a week? 168 hours in a week. I think that's right. You can check me later. But 168 hours in a week, and we get so caught up in what happens one of those hours. Half a percent of our week we spend in this assembly. And this assembly, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, this assembly changes everything, doesn't it? It changes us for the week and for our lives. It changes us. It shapes us into who we're supposed to be. But don't get so caught up in what we can and can't and should and shouldn't do. In this one hour, our life ought to be filled up with what we're doing in the other 167 hours of our week. And that ought to be filled with good works. And so often we talk about the things women shouldn't do or should do, whatever. The Bible is chock full of godly women who saved God's people. I mean, people, women like Esther saved God's people. People like Rahab saved God's people. People like Ruth who helped bring David in the world saved God's people. The women who, who ministered and worked with Jesus. Women like Phoebe who took care of and supported Paul's ministry. There is so much that you need to be doing and I need to be doing. And women, don't don't go along with what the world wants you to go along with. Don't let your adornment be what Hollywood says adornment ought to be. Don't let your adornment be what New York says your adornment ought to be. 
Let your adornment with humility and self-control be your good works. That's, that's what's good for women who profess godliness. Again, all throughout the book, he says the same thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 10, he's talking about widows. And he says, listen, the, the way a widow should be a widow when she's elderly and the church takes care of her, she, by that time she should have a reputation of doing things like washing the feet of the saints and caring for the afflicted and devoting herself to every good work. So don't, don't go away from here today thinking that this morning's lesson is about what you shouldn't do. It's not. It's about what you should do. It's just that men and women have a slight distinction in what we should be doing, but all of God's people have work to be doing to protect God's people from the schemes of Satan. Look at verse 11. He says this, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, I know, I mean, hairs on the back of your neck start to stand up. I don't know about this one now, Wes. How are you going to? Well, wait, wait. I mean, number one, I, I know that it, it doesn't, in our culture, I know it doesn't seem like a big deal to say, let a woman learn, but it is. It was a big deal then. It's a big deal in a lot of parts of the world because a lot of people value women less and feel like, why should a woman learn? Why, why does a woman have any business being educated in anything? That's not the gospel. The gospel elevates women it says, let, let women and men be disciples of Jesus and let them learn. And then we get caught up kind of on this quietness and submissiveness. But why, why do we think of those as bad things? Why do we, why do we think of those as bad things? Doesn't Paul say that all of us ought to be desiring to live a quiet and peaceable life? And, and submissiveness, why, why do we think of that as a bad thing? Yes, I know. I know people have manipulated it and used that to demean people and keep people under their foot. That's not Christianity, and that's not the gospel, and you can't treat people in an unloving way and call that Christianity. It's not. But submission isn't a bad thing. All of us are called in different ways to submit to each other, to the governing authorities, to Jesus. Even Jesus himself submitted himself quietness and submissiveness and coming together and saying there's different roles when we come together and some need to just learn just learn just learn that's not a bad thing that's a good thing look at verse 12 i don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man rather she is to remain quiet now again that's a very limited specific thing so he's saying Listen, that's not her role, to lead, exercising authority, or to teach in this context. She's to be a, a student, a disciple. And, and again, that's, that's not a derogatory thing at all. But, but sometimes people wonder, well, why did Paul say this? Why did Paul say that, that a woman isn't to teach or exercise authority over a man? Maybe there was something specific going on in Ephesus. And there's been a lot of effort recently to try to unearth and kind of dig up some, some things that say, well, maybe this was just culturally dependent. Maybe it was just a situation specific to Ephesus. A lot of people draw out the fact that in, in Ephesus, there was this huge temple to the goddess Artemis. And so that temple was kind of the hub of that city in, in some ways. And so some people have speculated that in Paul's time that, that it was kind of a female-dominated society, and maybe that's why Paul said this. Church, listen, that not only doesn't have any support in the text 
from all that we can figure out about Ephesus in the time of Paul, it was a pretty typical male-dominated society. So that wasn't the situation. And, and above that, above why Paul said this, because he doesn't say, well, this is the way that it is because women aren't as smart as men or aren't as talented as men or women uh, just don't know enough. None of those are the reason, but he gives the reason. Let's look at what he says in the next verse, verse 13. Here's the reason. It wasn't because of some temporary situation in Ephesus, and it certainly wasn't because men are more important, and it wasn't because men are more talented, and it wasn't because men are smarter, and it wasn't because women are more gullible. It wasn't any of those things. He says this, it's anchored in creation. He says Adam was formed first, and then Eve. He says that that gives them different roles. That, that makes one the, the teacher and one not the teacher. That makes one the, the, the one to exercise authority and one not to in that context. Now, you may not like that and you may push back against that, but that's what the text says. That's what the apostle of Jesus says, is that this is the reason why I'm instructing men to do these things and women to do these things is because Adam was formed first and then Eve. And, and then he says, and I don't think this is a second point, I think it's part of the same point. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. I don't think it's about women being gullible. and I don't think it's about women being punished for Eve's sin. In fact, I think that what he says here has as much, if not more, to do with men and our responsibility than it does women. Because Paul says Adam was created first, which, which should have implied to Adam, and it should imply to us, and it certainly applied to Paul, implied to Paul, that Adam should have been the leader and the teacher. But Satan, that's the core of this whole book, isn't it? Satan, this deceiver, this manipulator, he subverted the way that things were supposed to be, and he approached Eve. And he manipulated her, and he deceived her, and he tricked her, and she took a bite of the I don't know if it was an apple. Ian Ferris says it's an apple. I just say it's a fruit. You know, I don't know. But anyway, I uh, took the apple. Or, see, I said it anyway. The fruit. And, and ate it and gave it to her husband who was standing there. What should Adam have done? Well, one thing's for sure. He shouldn't have allowed Satan to tempt his wife. And he shouldn't have allowed Satan to deceive his wife. He should have done what Timothy was being called to do, what the elders were being called to do, what men are being called to do. He should have stood between Satan and the people of God, and he should have had the courage and the boldness to teach and lead and defend and protect, and he didn't. So Paul is saying, church, listen, what I want to protect against is God's people being led astray. And if you don't respect the calling to which you've been called, the role to which you've been called, then you make yourself and the people of God vulnerable. Look at verse 15. Now, here's the hardest part. Out of time. We'll sleep. No, no. Uh, Verse 15. Yet she, that is the woman, will be saved through childbearing. I know that's kind of a weird phrase. I don't think he means, obviously he doesn't mean that if you have a baby, then your sins are forgiven and you're saved. No, no, no. That, anytime the Bible says you'll be saved, you've got to ask the question, from what? Saved from what? Well, in context, in, in this book, he's talking about being led astray and being deceived by Satan. He says, listen, the women will be saved by fulfilling their role. 
And you say, well, but not everybody is a mother. Not every woman has a baby. That's not the point. The point is, not every man is a preacher. Not every man is a teacher. He's saying that, that there is, there are certain things, childbearing being one of those, that men can't do. Men are not allowed to do. By nature, men aren't allowed to do it. There are certain things that are the role of woman and certain things that are the role of man. And he says, listen, women, if you'll fulfill your role, if you'll live out your calling, not just that, but with faith and love and holiness and self-control, then you'll be saved from being deceived and led astray. And I think a good kind of verse to put along with that one is what he says in chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Look at that. He says, younger widows should marry and bear children and manage their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. See, that's what Paul wants to protect against in Ephesus, and that's what we want to protect against here, isn't it? We just want to live quiet, peaceable, godly, dignified lives. And the way we do that is we listen to the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. Because if we adopt a worldview that denies unique roles and responsibilities and callings, we not only put ourselves in danger, we put the family of God in danger. That's your choice and it's my choice whether or not to follow Jesus. Whether or not to adopt his unique way of looking at and living in the world. But I choose to listen to him. And I want to encourage us all to submit ourselves to him and say, you know what? I have a unique role. You have a unique role. Each of us have a unique role in not only our own lives and mission and keeping ourselves from being deceived, but in protecting the family of God. That men and women have unique roles in protecting the family of God, from Satan. That shouldn't make you feel less important. Whether you're a man or a woman, it shouldn't make you feel less important. It's not about that. You're valued and loved by God. What it should make you feel is you have a job to do. I have a job to do. By living out the calling to which I've been called. You by living out the calling to which you've been called. And as we all work together, we not only protect ourselves from the schemes of Satan, we protect the family of God from him. But men, I want to especially end with us and say God expects us and calls us to stand in the gap, to stand between Satan and our families, to stand between Satan and the church and to teach and lead and protect and defend. Too many homes are left defenseless and too many churches are left defenseless because men of God won't stand up and do what they're called to do and be who they're called to be. That's not to discount the role of women. Every single person in this room was brought into this world by a woman, right? Every one of us, every apostle, every elder, every deacon, every preacher, Jesus himself, every one of us were brought into the world and not just brought into the world by a woman, but ministered to and taught many times by a woman. You have a unique role and responsibility, not just in childbearing, but in so many ways. God is calling you to a unique life of protecting yourself and your family and the church of God from the schemes of Satan. 
Let's live in a manner worthy of this calling to which we've been called. Maybe there's somebody here that's not yet a Christian, or maybe you just need prayers. Let us help you as together we stand and sing.